0: All right, folks, before we get to the main thing, I want to let you know that this episode of Oil & Gas Upstream is made possible by our good friends at Technip FMC. Now, you probably know them for their subsea business, but did you know that Technip FMC is doing fantastic things for the industry at the surface? The latest innovation is called e-Mission, and e-Mission will let you monitor and control vapor pressure in real time. To learn more, visit TechnipFMC.com.
1: Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host, Some of you know me as the former Director for Oil and Gas Upstream Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE and founded a small consultancy and became a podcast host. Before I introduce our guest, I want to thank Technip FMC for sponsoring this podcast. And I want to ask you to do me a big favor by answering a one-question survey. It takes about 10 seconds, and the link is in the show notes below. In return, we will happily send you some stickers for your hard hat or your laptop or your friends. I'd also like to let you know about a new op- special opportunity from Russell Stewart, my peer, on our HSE podcast. The second annual Human Performance in Action Conference being held in Houston, Texas on April 17-19. through 19th. All OGGN listeners... Get a 10% discount for using the code OGGNHSE podcast. All one word. When you register, just go to www.knowledgevine, as in grapevine, you know, knowledgevine, .knowledgevine www.knowledgevine.com for more details and to find the registration link. This conference is for everyone in the industry, so register while the discount is still available. Links and information are in the show notes. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest, Dr. Joe Morris from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California. Hi, Joe. Thanks for being with us today.
0: Thanks, Elena. Um, It's it's truly an honor to be here, and uh, I can't wait to show off to my kids that uh, I finally made it uh, made it big, and I'm in a podcast now.
1: Oh, they are going to think you are so cool, so cool. Well, let me, let me just read for everyone here some, from some of your um, resume and your accomplishments. Dr. Joseph Morris is the Associate Program Leader for Subsurface Energy and Nuclear Effects R&D at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Dr. Morris received his Ph.D. from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia in Mathematics, Specializing in computational astrophysics. Oh, my daughter is an astronautics engineer. Oh. I think you know that though. <laughs> Later, Dr. Morris was a postdoctoral fellow at Purdue University where he first was introduced to geomechanics. Dr. Morris has over 20 years' experience developing multi physics computational methods with a focus on subsurface processes. He's worked at Lawrence Livermore for over 15 years where he leads a range of geothermal and petroleum products. Dr. Morris also worked for five years as a principal scientist with Slumberger doll Research, developing and applying novel techniques for optimizing technologies for proppant placement during hydraulic fractioning. Great. Well, Joe, wow, what an, what an impressive resume. And, of course, you and I have worked together for a long time on several DOE uh, projects related to subsurface. Mm-hmm. So um, can you tell us uh, something about uh, lawrence Livermore National Laboratory or maybe some of the other national laboratories, the laboratory complex, just to orient our uh, listeners to this uh, whole
0: area? Yeah, um, so I'd be happy to. So, uh, you know, the Department of Energy has... Um, a number of national labs um, operating around the US. Uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab is, is one of the larger ones and it has a really a broad um, mission. Um, a lot of it's focused on national security, but that includes energy security. And as such, at Lawrence Livermore, um, they invest in and apply technologies to enable um, effective and responsible energy utilization, and this includes petroleum resources. and uh, Uh, As as one of the things I find particularly exciting about working at a place like Lawrence Livermore is we have um, uh, I think it's almost 9,000 staff now and we're all on one uh, square mile campus Um, and we're located in east of San Francisco in the Livermore Valley and one of the things about having everybody co-located like that uh, it's That's so amazing is we have all kinds of disciplines represented. We have physicists, engineers, chemists Uh, geoscientists, computer scientists. And um, uh, when I, you know, as you you mentioned, I was at Schlumberger, I I, I came back from Schlumberger to work at Lawrence Livermore. One of the things I was really excited to come back to was this interdisciplinary team that you can just pick people from. And and so whenever we have a challenging problem that comes along, you know, you literally can just grab slices of people like you know 20 percent of a chemist and one and a half uh, geophysicists combined with um oh I don't know a a, a, you know a computational scientist or two and and really rapidly build teams uh and and deliver amazing results and it's really part of our philosophy to be able to be you know agile like that and and really build teams and, and naturally dissolve them over time and build new teams uh and so that that gives you a bit of a flavor of yeah, you know, the breadth that we have um, where I work now, and, and also the, the kinds of applications we're interested in.
1: The work that we did together at the Department of Energy when I was there related to hydraulic fracturing really was uh, kind of launched with your understanding, your basis for you, with your work with Slumberger. So tell us something about your slumberger work, if you can, and then uh, maybe we can move into some of the work that we did um, at the with hydraulic fracturing and and modeling if you will
0: yeah sure well this it, it kind of ties into how i got into um you know oil and gas in the first place um so it, i don't know if you don't mind i'd like to go back a little bit and sort of explain how i got to be at Schlumberger in the first place um and as you mentioned in in the in my bio uh you know i was doing astrophysics um, for my phd and and i really saw myself as somebody who was going to be working on developing software to predict like you know, the evolution of stars and galaxies and things like that and and then um i realized by the end of my phd that i wanted to do something that was more practical you know something that had more immediate tangible impact on people's lives and improving their quality of life and i got interested in geomechanics you know the study of how rock and soil deforms in the subsurface and i started off in civil engineering and then it was actually while i was at um, livermore my first time around at livermore I started getting involved in carbon storage, CO2 sequestration. And in fact Schlumberger recruited me to help work on the geomechanics of carbon storage. But once I got there, it was in the middle of the unconventional revolution. And so it was very natural for me to then uh, uh, segue into working on um, shale reservoirs and the stimulation of shale reservoirs because we were really wrestling with a lot of know, fundamental questions about um, how to better stimulate these shale reservoirs to make them more productive. Uh, We had projects that were very much, uh, you know, looking at reducing the environmental footprint. Um, You know, we wanted to really radically reduce the amount of water that was being used during these operations. And uh, so that's, uh, you know, And and as part of that um, specifically, and I've published a bit on this if uh, if folks are interested in looking at it more we had a a technology developed at Schlumberger called Highway uh, at that time and I was um, working on methods to try to understand better just how that technology was really working and how we could better optimize it for different reservoirs and uh, so that was basically the the fundamental work that I was doing at Schlumberger at that time and um, I'm happy to say that you know, some of my work there ultimately you know, made it into engineering and became part of the software that's used by the company to help you know, optimize uh, those sorts of operations.
1: Well, I knew about uh, I knew about your work at Slumerge somewhat. Um, as, it, as it would come in, and especially the practical applications that we talked about, I mean, which was so, so important with the new research that DOE was doing, you know, at the time. and uh, But I did not know about the astrophysics, <laughs> which, you know, it, it's so exciting to me, because, I mean, ultimately, the subsurface is about star stuff, <laughs> yeah, right? And that's done. where it is, right? I mean, that's 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 very that's very and then you talked about uh, uh understanding the deformation of uh the rock and soil and of course my undergraduate is soil so i mean i didn't know that part about you yeah. know about your background yeah. either Oh we have so much we're going to talk about oh my gosh we're gonna have to have another podcast uh <laughs> getting to getting to this but okay so um yeah so so talk can you talk about some of the the work that we that we did together some of the yeah. um uh, modeling that you did for hydraulic fracturing and the like because that was just so fascinating to me I learned so much from you. So tell us a little bit about that yeah. work.
0: Uh, so, you know, I mentioned at Livermore we have um, you know, a strong interest in energy security and uh, that includes, you know, improving our collective understanding of what's going on in the subsurface and um, uh, to to that end uh, at Livermore we've invested in you know developing software that you know pulls upon all of those different disciplines I mentioned earlier to really try to improve our understanding in a fundamental way of what's going on uh, you know, our, our argument has been that you know um, you know historically a lot of what we've done in terms of subsurface management has been very you know empirical um, you know, you try something else, something out in terms of uh, an approach to hydraulic fracturing. You know, whether it's the amount of sand you're pumping down there, or the kinds of viscosities of the fluids and what have you. What, we were, what we've really been trying to do with our more sort of fundamental approach is uh, al- allow us to really be predictive of how decisions you make in terms of, for example, what fluids you're pumping, like really translate into you know downhole effects. Um, this is something that I really was struck by at my time at Schlumberger, was how a lot of what we uh, often do in the subsurface, you know, we, we meticulously mix things at the surface, uh, we have ideas about you know, the kind of viscosity we're trying to achieve, and, and, and then the moment things go down whole, it, it, it's, um, it's sort of a leap of faith in terms of what's going to happen when this stuff interacts oh, with absolutely. the rock, right? and and trying to break that sort of break down that model where we do everything best we can above ground and then cross our fingers when we're pumping and i know it's not quite like that but 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 really it but it's close it's a dark place down there we don't really know what's going on right
1: (laughs) i Um, talk about that all the time and and we really can't see what
0: we're doing and so um and 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 I, i mean the project that you and i collaborated on was very much focused on also how can we take these best-of-breed capabilities, and it wasn't just Lawrence Livermore, we had um, software developed at Lawrence Berkeley that was part of that um, research as well, Uh, complementary um, technologies to really try to understand how the mechanics, the flow and the chemistry interact um, in the subsurface. Um, Another piece which um, wasn't so much a part of that collaboration but certainly something of great interest at Livermore as well is not just like modelling things, but how do we improve our measurements? And um, I find this to be a very exciting area as well uh, because it's it's changing so rapidly. Um, uh, although I guess you know on the, under the smart initiative, we, we did touch on this a bit, uh, um, where we were looking at um, you know kind of changing the whole paradigm for how we monitor in the subsurface by utilizing machine learning. Um, but uh, to back up a little bit on that topic. Uh, you know, at Livermore, we uh, again because of the multidisciplinary nature of things, you know, we have people working on fiber optics and laser gu- waveguides, and we have been taking these sorts of technologies and using them to better understand how you know fiber-based monitoring in the subsurface can be you know, better tuned to tell us what we want to know about um, hydraulic fracturing, for example. Um, we have people working on uh, downhole fiber-based chemical sensing. Um, It's another really exciting emerging area. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot going on, I I think, in terms of this confluence of, you know, better physics-based modelling for what goes on in the subsurface, and at the same time, um, you know, I I see a lot more affordable measurement technologies and, and a real deluge of data. And huge amounts of data means you can't have people in the loop looking at every single, you know, wiggle and... Bit of data that comes through, and so that's where the machine learning, I think, is going to make a huge difference in terms of how we interact with these large amounts of data. Um,
1: Absolutely, you talked, you touched on a couple of couple of things. I'd like to do a little bit deeper. So let's start with the Smart Initiative, yeah. S M A R T. I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but the notion was to be able to visualize. What we're seeing downhole, if you will, seeing the subsurface, uh, using well. When I when I was talking about it, I would talk about could we use like. Um, all of the uh, visualizations they use in these games, these role-playing games where, you know, people are actually making, interacting with each other in real time in this virtual space. Um, And so it wasn't quite like that that we were talking about in SMART. But the point that you were making about the SMART initiative with respect to understanding the subsurface, embellish on that a little bit
0: uh, more. Yeah. well, it's so related to what you're saying. You know, the, the, this the smart initiative is one that really seeks to revolutionise how we interact with the subsurface, right? And um, uh, you know, part of that is making it more relatable to people. And one of the things, uh, sort of a catchphrase that I developed early on in the project was, um, and this is a multi lab initiative within the Department of Energy. Um, one of the catchphrases I brought up was, you know, no more you know uh, plots by phds for phds and what i mean by that is like you know you dig up you 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 look at the typical presentation that somebody coming out of you know know, whether national labs or an academic institution what you know what kind of presentations they put together there's endless plots that you need a phd to understand what they're saying and uh you know smart has many um drivers for it and one of them, like you're saying, is just like, how do we visualize and interact with the data and how do we make it so that it's scalable? Like, you know, you, don't, you can't have a situation where, you know, a company that's operating has to like have a, you know, a PhD on speed dial, let, or, or worse still, at the wellhead to tell you what all of this means. Um, we need to make it more intuitive. And, um, and the other piece of SMART is, you know, really leveraging machine learning. Um, because you know we see this, uh, like I was saying, this confluence of like improved physics-based modeling combined with massive amounts of data, and to go to dig a little deeper into that, you know, with physics-based models, we can generate you know, massive amounts of synthetic data that can be used to train these neural networks to subsequently make you know, rapid interpretations of data as it comes in. Um, I, I, to back up a little bit on this, I mean, I know you and. I am familiar with this, Elena, but, you know, the reality in many instances is that data that's collected can often take weeks of turnaround to turn it into an interpretation, right? And when you're talking well, about, yeah. you are watching and monitoring a hydraulic fracturing operation, you know, that's just unacceptable if you're really going to capitalize on the measurement. And actually, I think for a long time, with some of the better quality measurements, we've been in a bit of a catch-22 that, like, well, nobody really wants to what, what, what's the value proposition of paying for measurements that you can't use in the moment? Um, in the yeah. moment, that's exactly uh, right. And, and so, yeah, trying to uh, accelerate uh, the technology to the point where you know we can actually make use of measurements in in real time, so that, uh, and and present the the data and the decision points to operators in a way that makes sense to them, is intuitive, and allows them to make confident decisions in the moment. That, this is the kind of thing that we really need to be enabling. And that's, that's you know, the overarching goal of SMART, basically.
1: And I, have, I, have, I always say two things um, about that. One is um, that being able to uh, unleash the best computer in the world, which is the intuition and insight of the human brain especially of trained scientists, um, is, you know, th- there's nothing like it. And you need a few tools to help support that, but nothing can really bring things together in a way that, that humans can, especially in a multidisciplinary team. you have got kinds of tons of data behind you and sifting through all of that and kind of figuring all that out. But bringing it together, that's where the magic happens, and that's very exciting. Yeah, the other thing is... Um, The notion of trying to uh, manipulate the subsurface uh, in the moment is really where the money is, if you will, Um, because being able to apply technologies, I mean, it's exciting. And of course, I love all of the brain candy, and and I really miss that being able to think about things that that we don't usually think about. but being able to use it and and get a return on that investment is why is really why we do it. And what that does is that generates more opportunities for more investment through the returns that are that are possible. So, so I I really love taking you know science and turning it into engineering and then turning it into some sort of field innovation that comes back and feeds the science and and that's a that's a wonderful yeah. loop. So so yeah absolutely okay so what were we talking about we were talking about smart and oh and then previously you had mentioned something about um i think i think you were talking about in the sense of sensors that bring in geochemistry and so that that's kind of a i mean we don't spend a lot of time talking about geochemistry i mean some people do but as a whole we kind of just it's all down there in the subsurface and it'll work itself
0: out something. No, And, um, and I, I, you know, we talked a bit about my career arc in terms of, you know, my background and you'll notice that chemistry wasn't really mentioned a whole lot there and I'm paying for it now. Like it's something that I've had to pick up, um, both on the, both in my, you know, you you mentioned my titles at Livermore, um, you know, subsurface energy being Mm -hmm. one and the other is, uh, nuclear effects. These are areas where chemistry plays a major role, and uh, you know I haven't done chemistry since high school in Australia, um, but I've picked up a lot along <laughs> the road, and I you know right. lean on my colleagues. I mean that's the whole point of having interdisciplinary teams, right? Is that you you, you know nobody exactly. does everything, yes. so uh, that's right. And um, it's something though that I've learned to respect, and um, and I see honestly like a lot of our biggest challenges have to do with. Uh, uh, you know in the sh- both in the short term and over the longer term this intersection between the engineered environment and the natural environment and one of the biggest drivers in terms of perturbing our artificial environment in the subsurface over time is apart from you know mechanics plays a role but the chemistry things like you know uh, when you look at some of the challenges we have with wells over the long haul uh you know we In the past we may have built wells for a couple of years and now every now and again we have an issue that's related to the fact that there's you know corrosion or some other chemistry-related incompatibility between what we've introduced um and and the natural system and in the short term as i was alluding to earlier um i i you know i i've seen how you know we we invest a lot in trying to come up with uh you know, the robust chemistry at surface in the lab, pump it down whole, and we don't always take into account... I mean, there are are egregious examples where, you know, things will go very rapidly wrong if you get the chemistry completely wrong in in terms of compatibility with the formation. But but there's more to it than uh, um, what most people... There's basically more that should be done there, I think, to understand those interactions if we're really going to... um, you know, improve our utilisation of the subsurface in, 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 a, in a major way. Um, this, this actually, I, I, um, what I find myself thinking a bit about is um, a sort of related question, well, a related issue uh, that I wanted to bring up as part of our discussion, and that's... It, Part of what excites me to be involved in this whole area is that I really do see the subsurface as being, you know, a precious resource and we need to be good custodians of it. And chemistry plays a major role there, but everything we do in the subsurface is important. And I think in so many instances we've come to pay a price for having a bit of an out of sight, out of mind attitude to the subsurface. And and I'm not picking out our industry (laughs) <laughs> in, alone by any means I mean another you know right. when it comes to things like groundwater utilization and management um that's been a major issue worldwide for example but um yeah I often think about like you know, what state are we leaving the subsurface in for my kids and their kids um and and it makes you think a bit differently about you know things like you know uh, if you think about it that way are the things we're doing today in terms of, for example, hydraulic fracturing and unconventionals that are going to make it a little, you know, especially when you consider how much of the resource we're leaving in place, are they going to make it more difficult for uh, subsequent generations to come back and, you know, they've got some great ideas now for new technologies for how to utilize those resources, but, you know, the way we did things in the past has made it more difficult for them now to revisit these resources. And, and so, um, yeah, I, 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 when I think about, you know, some of the drivers... I, I don't want to just think about, like, the short-term improvements in production. It's also like, you know, well, are we really thinking about these resources in terms of them being, um, you know, there for subsequent generations as well? And, and it's a tough choice. You know, how do you balance the needs of today with the needs of the future? And I don't have great answer. Uh,
1: yeah, absolutely. And, and, and one of the, the um, – got so many things. I love talking to you. So the, the first thing is, as a soil scientist, which is my undergraduate work, it didn't really come into play in conventional reservoirs when I first started an oil and gas business. But it did come into play in a very big way when we got into the shale work. Because I realized, you know, that the soil formation factors all come into play in the subsurface, especially when you have so much uh, change Uh, from the weight of the rock above it if you will right sedimentary it still it was particles and then it got kind of pushed together with a little bit of chemistry and a little more chemistry than others in some places making the difference between conventional and unconventional formations not just how they were laid down but also the the interaction there so as we started talking about pH and especially clays Uh, and and the different kinds of clays and the composition, that caused me to think about conventional reservoirs in the sense that, you know, we only can produce about a third of what's there. Two-thirds is still there in conventional clays. And if we're ever going to increase ultimate recovery in unconventionals, it's never going to be more than what we can recover from conventionals yeah. where it's yeah. easier. So it's like we're really going after. in I mean, we just have a wealth of energy, and I'm an all-of-the-above person, mm-hmm. so don't want, to go, don't, don't want to go there. But certainly, we have a lot that we can do, and the stewardship is the most important. And so really understanding what we've got and what we've done in the past because we didn't know, we didn't know better, um, we do know better now. And so I would really like to see there be a movement to take this advanced technology and insights that we've gained from the unconventional space and apply it back into conventional reservoirs and see if we might not be able to get a little more recovery. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's that's I mean, a really interesting point. Um, I think also, you know, it's um, when, it, when I first got introduced to, you know, um, the the oil and gas business. It was actually in connection with um, CO2 storage and it it was an instance where they were were looking at injecting CO2 into an existing petroleum reservoir and I I encountered for the first time this sort of mindset that um, you only invoke the physics that you need in order to make a history match and but you know that there's a lot more physics than that going on in the reservoir. And some of which is going kind to of,
1: have to make all those simplifying assumptions. to things found
0: Kind of frustrating about that was that, you know, they'd say things like, well, geomechanics doesn't matter. Or like you're getting at, you know, these chemical processes don't matter because I can get a good history match, which is basically curve fitting. It doesn't tell you what the future holds. And, um, and yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I get into arguments about, well, you know, it's a fractured reservoir. The fractures are playing a role, and like, well, I don't need fractures in my history match, so they're not doing anything. <laughs> and then you know, later you find out. Well, it turns out that you know, and then later something happens in the reservoir, and it turns out fractures play a role. And it's you know, it's no good to be saying I told you so, but but the, but you do what you can afford at the time. And now we have so much better tools and 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 technologies for looking at the interplay between mechanics and chemistry and so on. I, and I think there's a lot that could be learned by transferring that over to the conventionals like you're you're suggesting um yeah but uh but that was one of the things that was attractive about unconventionals to me was it was clear that a lot of things that had been in the background which we many of us had argued were making a difference they were now like everything like you can't you, you can't understand stimulation in a unconventional reservoir without addressing geomechanics and you better understand you mentioned the clays like (laughs) if you do something that releases all the clays you're in a you're in a world of hurt right um yeah so anyway it's it's interesting
1: yeah yeah no uh, absolutely and this is uh you know this is what i love talking with uh people like you about you know with different kinds of backgrounds and then different kinds of experience and then just so much uh um Capability. I mean, you guys are brilliant. I love, I love working with the national labs. I loved working with, uh, I love working with you. So, well, we're almost at our end of our time. Is there um, anything else you want to share? I mean, we. I feel like we just t- barely touched the surface of your of your contributions to to oil and gas. I mean, we did have a very deep uh, portfolio with respect to um, from uh, you know nanoscale to we used to say pore to core to reservoir when we talked about you know the whole portfolio including the field laboratories um and so that that nanoscale is uh well but you get so much data when you're at that scale to be able to apply it in this heterogeneous heterogeneous environment and so so i've had a, a guess this 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 should go the show with the guest that I'm about to tell you about hasn't aired yet. By the time will air, by the time your show airs, Um, but we're talking about quantum computing, and I really didn't understand that, but now I understand it, and it just takes me back when we're talking about the nanoscale. Natural systems just have so many, you know, parameters and so much data is possible, and then so many interactions that you can tease out you know to kind of to isolate together. There's just so many I mean so we blow up the whole data thing and being able to compute <laughs> yeah. um, compute things, you know kind of right away. And yet, that's what's going on. It's happening, even though we don't understand it. It's happening, and sometimes it's a wonder that we can get any production yeah. at all uh, when we when we can't kind of talk about that.
0: Yeah, definitely. There was one thing I wanted to bring up, if I could, that we didn't touch on, oh, and nice. I, I feel like it's it's this it's it's, in your, it, it's bigger than the, the than the oil and gas focus we've had here. It's the fact that you know things in the subsurface are really changing a lot now, and I think um, our utilization of the subsurface for energy is not going away at all, it's, it's really diversifying and tackling that in a, um, in, a in a good way uh, is, is going to prove to be very much a challenge because we're going to have competing uh, calls on, on utilization in the subsurface. We, we touched, I, you mentioned geothermal very early on, I and mean, that's one where enhanced geothermal systems that require stimulation, I can see natural connections between you know, what we've learned from oil and gas, especially in unconventionals that you know, potentially could carry over there. Um, but of course, you know, there are major differences. Um, uh, we've had natural gas storage in the subsurface for decades, of course. Um, a lot more emphasis seems to be growing in terms of hydrogen storage, CO2 storage, um, energy storage in the subsurface, whether it's like thermal or mechanical. Um, there's really this long list now of subsurface activities that, you know, there, there are some... Areas of overlap, but then there are key differences as well and really getting our arms around as a society and, and making sure that we're ready for that I think really like this rapid period of energy transformation and utilization of the subsurface it's going to be a, a big challenge um, and I don't see us getting there without leveraging you know talent from upstream petroleum areas um, and combined with you know, new technologies and new understanding as well. So I think that that's another area that's particularly exciting, and, and it kind of ties in also with what I mentioned about Lawrence Livermore, where you know, being having a broad mission allows, and and so many disciplines represented allows us to really help by taking idea. You know, we're naturally set up to help transition ideas between these different application spaces because we're not, you know, siloed um, in a way that would prevent us from doing that.
1: Yeah, yeah, those silos, we know, we know better. We understand that when you do that, you miss out on some insights that could really help you in, in your applications. But I, I completely agree with you. You know, we're going to probably go from petroleum engineers to subsurface yeah. engineers with a concentration in petroleum, concentration in geothermal concentration, something else. Um, and I see it from kind of like the soils perspective because there are so many different kinds of soil scientists and you can actually see and touch the yeah. soil, right? So, I mean, that's there are so many um, insights that are possible there and still specializations on something that you can see. So, all the more in something that you can't see. But the very common technologies that could provide um, the data, the information... The insights all of that has um, has a place and of course then i guess we're talking about you know the sensors and whatever the measure measurement tools that we're going to need to invent in order to really understand uh so much more especially as things change because we know i mean just very simply produced water is not the same even in the same well Over the course of time, right? It's just, uh, it's just a, it it just changes, right? Because of all that chemistry and a whole, you know, we haven't even talked about. Well, I was
0: going. It's funny you say that because as you start talking about (laughs) produced waters and its evolution, I'm like, oh, we didn't talk bio at all, and that is a, that's a huge, huge uh, nut to crack. Like, yeah. (sighs)
1: yeah 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 okay well we're gonna have to have you come back and we'll talk more about this about this good stuff i just i just love talking to you so uh, so we are we are at at end um joe i really thank you so much for for joining us today you're
0: most welcome elaine it's been it's been great uh, catching up with you and chatting and and uh and, and having opportunity to you know hopefully be listened by to by a, a different audience than uh usually gets to hear from you. this is great
1: And your kids. Your kids are going to hear this, right? right. (laughs) I
0: to like tie them down and make them listen to the whole thing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. They'll learn something. I guarantee (sighs) you. Well, Dr. Joe Morris, Associate Program Leader for Subsurface Energy and Nuclear Effects R&D at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Thank you so much for being our guest today and for sharing all about your contributions to upstream oil and gas. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please give us a review and tell us what you like and what you would like to hear about more in future podcasts. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.